This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit ReconstructionistRadio.com and look for podcasts to download this installment of Setting the Record Straight or any other podcasts. Look, you can't be any more net pathetic than I am, and if I could find it and record it and download this, I know you can. Hi, I'm Joseph Foreman. I've been asked to deliver a podcast series on hermeneutics. I didn't even know I was pregnant with him, but they say he must be delivered, so we will start our initial breathing. And by the end, we may be pushing and heavy panting to hold off the contractions. Yes, that is humor. The first thing you discover, whether you thought that was funny or not, you knew that I was some pathetic attempt at being funny, and what you discover about hermeneutics, which will be the main point of this podcast, is you don't need it. You already understand most of what you see and hear. No matter where we go with our asking why this is, this fact that you do interpret, you do understand, and you also misinterpret and misunderstand, are both given to you. They're seldom, if ever, earned by you. But the people who diagnose me, in need of delivering hermeneutics, another Greek godling, no doubt, are the good people of Reconstructionist Radio who will be making this podcast available on a schedule that I'm not sure of because it's every fifth Sunday. But you will love it, at least the other podcasts you will love, and you'll find them interesting. I do promise. I've listened to a lot of them. Me? I'm afraid I never knew much about my topic, hermeneutics, except Bill Evans said I should talk about it. But I don't know that much about hermeneutics, and it's for the same reason that I had such a hard time with grammar. Duh. I could speak the language. I could understand what is being said. In the case of hermeneutics, I don't need to be a physicist to hit the ball out of the park. Just a really good batter. And you are too. You're listening to this. You're understanding me. And unfortunately, what this has done for me is it's made me la a lazy scholar because I've polished the art of intuitive analysis and understanding to such a point that I have become a master of BS, which, of course, is one of my many degrees that I have earned both in school and out. And that's why when I'm confronted by someone who actually knows the facts, it's scary to be saying stuff that really smart people like Joel or Bojadar or Peter Jones or Douglas Wilson or Martin Selbridi or the, you know, the guy with that huge megachurch following on Facebook he has like 125,000 members or friends or something. If they heard what I'm saying, it scares me. They say, Jason, who is this guy? Get us someone who actually knows what he's talking about. You know, someone like Rush Dooney or Van Til or Bonson or David Chilton or, heck, you, Jason, you're smarter than this guy. <clears throat> Which is why I'm asking you, my listeners, not to tell anyone who is really smart about this podcast, especially not these guys. Well, some of them have been dead. I don't know how you would tell them. But you see, all I've been doing for the last 10 years, which makes me totally unqualified to talk about hermeneutics, is I've been talking to the grunge millennial fringe in my coffee bar. You know, people committed to separating their trash into 30 piles, and they think that Christianity is all about rules and regulations. You know, the people who believe that carbon is a poison, um, even though it is the basis of life on this planet, Wait, isn't it carbon that defines organic chemistry? That is chemistry about life, in which every molecule has a carbon atom in it. But it's poisonous. People who preserve their feces for fear that their mother, the Earth, will somehow judge them for warming the planet if they dispose of it like in a toilet or something. Speaking of which, they refuse to flush in my coffee bar, 
and then turn off the lights as they leave the restroom. Seriously? The fan is attached to that switch. The rest of us have to walk into that stinking miasma in the dark and turn on the light only to be greeted. Well, you get my point. These are the people that I've spent a lot of time talking to, which is why I'm not really qualified to, to think deeply. You just don't have to. See, and these people think that they're in touch with the, with the heart of the universe. People who think that when you're at the top of a water table, and we live here on the highest mountain east of the Mississippi, Mount Mitchell, they think that it's possible to waste water. They're constantly lecturing on, don't waste water, but you can't waste water if you're at the top of the water table. No matter what you do with your water, it's going back into the water table, and it will be used by people downstream. Poor people, but that's how it works. Um, and so this is why they refuse to flush in some kind of a self-righteous protest. Come to think of it, I think I know some Christians who take a very similar approach to argument on Facebook. Hmm, there's a metaphor in everything. You know, people who think that they are successful because they believe in themselves. They think they're enlightened because they're in touch with their kundalini, whatever that is, but we're too stoned to really remember where their kundalini is or what happened. <clears throat> the people who think they are free because they believe government should tax everyone else and pay their way too. To, to what I'm not sure they're paying their way to. <clears throat> but they certainly think that other people ought to pay the way, and they think they are at peace when they can get a good cup of coffee and mock people who actually do have everything they grope after. And that's where I come in. I sell the coffee and try to talk them out of groping around. Now, these are the people I've been talking with for the last 10 years, which is why I'm not very bright. And before that, I was best known for my ability to sit down in front of a door. Sheesh, how hard is that? See, none of this requires half a brain, and that one's turned mostly to mush, and believe me, that's about all I have left. If, I, if my life did require ability and learning, I would not have been so successful at it. Oh, did I mention that before I was that, I was a janitor for five years after graduation. So if you have to keep on listening, don't be too underwhelmed. I warned you. But this is my background, my training, just trying to be honest with you. Let's see. Hermeneutics. Okay. Hermeneutics are the rule. Hermeneutics is the rules of it. Is it is or are? Is it plural? Is it one hermeneutic? Huh. Hermeneutics must be. You know what? I, I'm, I'm off to a great start. I can't even figure out the grammar of my first sentence. Look. I can't tell you how many times I have started this talk with a simple example of hermeneutics and four pages later quit so far out in the weeds I couldn't even hear the dinner bell. Now, did you read this far or in your case did you listen? Did you understand what I said? Of course you did. Fine. You have just proved that you don't need rules to understand what you read or hear. You just do it. Everything you read and hear is just like this, words you are familiar with in a pattern that puts those meanings together and they result in your understanding of what is being said. So why am I going to give a lecture after lecture after lecture on hermeneutics? No, it isn't just this lecture. I've got a bunch to go on a, on, on a topic that is about what you do every day, all the time, in almost everything you do. You make sense out of what those around you are saying, and then you reply to them in a way that they make sense out of what you have said, and that's how you have conversations, discussions, and arguments.
Okay, okay, already, I hear you. Hermeneutics is not the practice of understanding what people write. It's the science of explaining the steps our mind goes through in order to understand what is being said. Is that what you're telling me hermeneutics is? That's it? That's all? Just describing the steps? No, that would be the psycholinguistics of understanding. And it is fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating, too. For instance, did you know that the average letter has six bits of information necessary to distinguish it from any other letter in the alphabet if it's randomly flashed? But your average six-letter word only requires about 15 bits of information, if that, to distinguish it from any other six-letter word randomly flashed. Huh. The letter requires lots of information. The word requires less information. It gets better. A short 10-word sentence requires about 40 bits of information if it's at the beginning of a paragraph, and only about 20, and in some cases, zero bits of information at the end of a paragraph. You've already guessed it. Did you know that if you read slower than 300 words a minute, you comp your comprehension radically drops because it is harder to put meanings together at the slow speed? And guess what is coming next? Uh, below a certain optimum speed, see, you have to blur everything together so that a meaning emerges, kind of like old movie tapes, you know, putting all those fast frames together and your mind merges them. Like I said, it's fascinating to discover that you really aren't reading so much as you are guessing as you go and picking up just enough information to confirm your guess. And that skimming sets you up to guess 95% of the information bits in the next sentence and paragraph. Speed reading is simply learning how to do what your mind and I are doing anyway, and you just don't know it. You just learn how to do it faster. Now, this small fact alone could explain much of why no one seems to pay attention to what other guys are arguing about on Facebook. They're skimming too fast, but they're not getting the comprehension of it. But, <sighs> amazingly enough, that's not hermeneutics either. It's sort of a discussion of what they discovered about how recognition works. So, the lamb, Pointon, comes with the great Clouseau to learn where did hermeneutics come from. Hermeneutics came from the need to prove something, whether to yourself or to someone else. You want to prove to yourself that you got something right. And so some philosopher comes along and gives you a set of hermeneutical rules that you'll that will help you be able to say, see, I was right. Now, the odd thing is, even though 98% of what you read, you sufficiently understand to meet your needs, there's still that 2% that you need to know with greater certainty that you understood it correctly. For instance, I just up there said, uh, so the Lamb Pointon comes through the great Clouseau with a, not a crummy French accent, but, but uh, it was a quote from a movie. Now, you heard that. You understood the words I said. And if you didn't, if you're not a shot-in-the-dark Clouseau fan, uh, it might have gone over your head. But you would have known I was quoting something, and it went over, and it's not terribly important. It's an example. You would have moved on. That's understanding meaning, even though you may not get the details of it. And understanding meaning is incredibly important. Did the direction manual say the antifreeze goes down the spout marked oil? If Jesus said you could never be divorced and Paul said your body belongs to your husband, then does that mean your filthy fornicating husband can bring any disease home to you and at any time and you have to catch it from him? Or, as the rabbinic literature claimed that Eliezer asked Abraham a hermeneutical question when he got back from the covenant ceremony, 
Abraham, let me be sure I have this straight. The Arabs get the land and the oil, and we have to cut off the end of our what? The fact is, 98% of what you read and hear you understand sufficiently well to thoroughly meet your needs. That 2% is the snarl. What did Abraham mean? What does God mean? Do you cut off your hand rather than sin with it? Do you actually join the covenant by, by circumcision? Do you buy a gun to defend your family? Or do you just let your family be killed? On this bottle, it says to call the poison center. Is that the place I get more poison? Or is that the place that will tell me how to treat the poison if I swallow it? If Shylock's contract calls for a pound of flesh, can Portia get her lover out of the contract by arguing in court disguised as a man that Shylock can have the flesh but not a drop of the blood? Would her argument still be binding if the judge discovered that the argument was made by a woman? Would her fiancé prefer breaking up with her than the shame of his needing a woman to defend him in court? By writing or saying this today, am I evil and sexist for even posing the honest question, which in Shakespeare's day would, would all be very relevant? Could someone hear this tape and conclude I was a sexist? That is, she interprets my words as expressing my beliefs instead of examples of sentences that require sound hermeneutical principles to correctly understand and realize that it is a humorous example of the hermeneutical dilemma. Would she find such humor itself offensive, the way some of you found my Eliezer joke above offensive? Yet others had to turn off the tape. It was so funny and unexpected to you that you died laughing. You can't wait to tell your friends. That's called reverse discipleship, by the way. But all of you listening got the humor, whether you despise the humorous for it or repeat the joke to all your friends. Look, <clears throat> these aren't modern questions. Everyone since Adam and Eve has known that they can misunderstand. What makes that unusual is usually they don't misunderstand or they don't think they misunderstand. In fact, the first sin is enticed by a hermeneutical observation or question. Did God really say? Well, that's a valid question. What did God say? <clears throat> Satan asked Eve to parse God's statement. And everyone knows that normally they understand what is said perfectly well. Eat of all these trees, don't eat of that tree. That's what's not to understand. But it can be disastrous to misunderstand. Who knows what Eve was missing if she misunderstood God's directive? What if God wanted her to assert her human individuality and eat of the tree? What if that was the test? Not simple obedience. It's a valid hermeneutical question, and I talk every day to people who believe Eve was their hero because she truly understood what God was saying, and the fundamentalists are the followers of Satan. I, believe it or not, I, I talk to people like that. It's a hermeneutical question. Who knows what Eve was missing if she misunderstood God's directive? So scattered through the ancient literature is that occasional reflection on the rules, usually of argument which are the other side of the coin for the rules of understanding. Or the ancients, like Paul, would make a brief reference to a hermeneutical method of interpreting a text that, <clears throat> in our wisdom, we have long since discovered that is discredited as a conclusive argumentation. But here it is in God's word, no less. Paul said, I say this as an analogy of Sarah and Abraham and Agur. They represent the, well, if you believe that scripture is inerrant, and so forth, then, then you've got to understand what he's saying is not 
uh, uh, affirming uh, analogical uh, interpretation, which was a honored interpretation of the of, of the Catholic sevenfold. Uh, that's the old church, you know, the medieval times of the sevenfold meaning of a text. Uh, it was one of them, and the Reformation said, no, you don't do it that way. But here you have Paul saying, that's an analogy. We've got to come to an understanding of that. And that is what I shall now proceed to. What are the valid ways of understanding, or how do we understand? What are the proper ways of knowing you've understood something and not misunderstood it? It was the Greeks, about 300 years before Jesus was born, who first started compiling lists of sound and unsound arguments, talking about argument itself, logic. The implication was that as you read, you can see if the rules of cogent thinking were followed or if there were fallacies in what you read, that you can critique it. But this is about how do you read and look for these things. Around 1400 to 1500, the world changed. Around the time of Descartes, Copernicus, the Bible translators into the common vernacular in the West, the Reformers, Francis Bacon, and many others, there was a gradual discovery that you can describe seemingly the whole world mathematically, and more, using mathematical descriptions, you could devise experiments that isolated the possible results of an event and causes of the events and enable you to find out what the real cause was for what different event. This is called the ontological rise of mathematical physics as it's applied by the scientific method. Now, I know that's a mouthful. It just means we can describe everything with math and set up experiments that show what the true causes of things are in the world that we experience. And thus, we can, by manipulating true causes, do all kinds of things like put water into plastic bottles. And the plastic bottle was once a gob of goo in the petroleum oil table. In other words... Math, when tied to an experimental method, was successful as a tool to help us describe physically what really is going on all around us, and then enable us to do things with nature that were thought impossible, even magical, like the invention of toilet paper. If different people followed the same method and the same formula and the same mathematics, they could end up with the same result. This repeatability seemed about as close as humanly uh, possible as humanity ever came to truly objective knowledge. And that became the ideal. What is objectively true? True no matter what. Hmm, I wonder what that could be. This led many to believe that the world was essentially mathematical, but more that when we applied a particular method of sifting through the information from the world, it seemed like we could know everything there is to know about everything, and our knowledge would be objectively true. That is, free of interpretation. It would not just simply be the dogmatic restatement of somebody, somebody or something else, which is to say everything is essentially regular and it's exhaustively knowable. Now that is the world that began to be born. We would know it as, as the modern world. We're at the end of about five, six hundred years of the other side of that experiment, seeing how it actually worked out. The end result wasn't quite as is is pleasant as it was hoped to be. Well, if the world is knowable, let's go back to what they were saying. If the world is knowable through mathematical equations and numerical measurements, then every branch of learning should be a branch of mathematics. All things should be reducible to mathematical formulae. The one who knew math is the one who would know the ultimate reality of all things, would be the one to touch the face of God, would be the one who could become God 
and math is a universal language of creation and creature alike. Babel schmabel. We talk math, and so does the whole universe. Math, they would say, is the hermeneutic of creation. No math, no reality. No math, no reality. Could well have been a bumper sticker they could have slapped on the backside of horses back in their day. By the 17th of the early 20th centuries, this drive made everyone want to have mathematically objective ways to prove that their branch of learning only dealt in matters that were objectively true for everyone. And guess what? We could finally rid ourselves of, of the idea that truth comes down from heaven, like the Bible, uh, and finally realize that truth is what we discover for ourselves. And so we have the birth of modern hermeneutics. Surely meaning itself could be reduced to a series of rules, which if we follow them carefully, we can all agree on what we read and what we hear, and we can know absolute truth. This is the ideal of the mathematical, physical rise of the idea that this is how the whole world works. Now, in the area of literature, this led to massive efforts to do things like make dictionaries of all words, and they wrote exhaustive encyclopedias of all knowledge. They put growth hormone, so to speak, into the universities to teach universal knowledge of the universe of all things thought and unthought in a mathematical context. But this is a lecture on hermeneutics as it applies to literature in the narrow sense, so I'll give you an example of how the ontological rise of mathematical physics transformed biblical studies. Before this rise, there was an understanding of the limits of human ability to understand all things. There was a practical or functional presuppositionalism. There were limits to what knowledge could prove. Therefore, everyone knows you had to start somewhere. And the Bible was the starting point in one sense, but beyond that, the official doctrine of the official church, the official interpretation, was the real starting point for all science and learning. Not just all religion, but mathematically described experiments should begin with the doctrine of the church. Once math and method of, however, once math and a method of repeating experiments took hold of the minds of humanity, there seemed to be no limit to what could be known and done. It seemed we had found a true starting point, namely repeat, repeatable experiments mathematically described. From 1250 on, the search, the race, was on to come up with an alternative starting point to the dogma of the church and the Bible. Real knowledge, they believed, came from the scientific method, and it was pitted against the true knowledge that came from the faith of the scientists. So you have the word of God in scripture and the word of God in, in, in the world as if they were in conflict. And to keep them from being in conflict, some of the best apologists of the age, unfortunately they were the best apologists of the age, and some of them still argue this way today, said that they were two separate realms. Now today we see much of the church still bamboozled by this simple of all, simplest of all fallacies, that the truth of faith is interior. And that spiritual means uh, it has no earthly or factual relevance. See, I can be spiritual no matter what you do to me. And I can believe whatever I want no matter what is out there. So that there's a truth in there, they said. Whereas in the real world, the ways things worked and, and operated, true faith and true spirituality have no real function out there. Except for one thing, they do make you give you an interior sense of peace, which to the person in the world 
that's very useful. It makes you more docile, more servile, and more ready to endorse whatever the evil people who live in the real world may want to tell you is normal. This false conflict, false on both sides, led to a whole movement in biblical studies to reject the idea that the Bible is true because God said it, or the church is true because God inspired it. To engage in this debate, the church no less than the world had to assume that God's word and God's creation were in conflict, and that God's uh, word said one thing, God's word's world said another, and the truly pious, the smart Christian would say, no, they both say the same thing. See, both are false ideas. It's a false starting point. But back then, they were firmly established framing the debate because it sure looked like the scientists were coming up with some stuff that just the Bible people had never thought of. It didn't fit into their world. And so, therefore, the whole Bible must be wrong. The result in the area of the humanities the study of things written, like literature, history, and so forth, instead of things that can be experimented on many times, the sciences. This, the, the result of the humanities was a race to discredit the Bible and the church as a legitimate starting point. Math and the proper scientific method replaced the Bible and church as the doctrine, and church doctrine as the starting point. Biblical studies were used to prove that the Bible is not at all a historically reliable document. The civilizations it described never existed, we were told. The kings and battles never happened. It is all literature, meaning a story, a fabrication, a fairy tale. Or, or not necessarily a fairy tale, could be a really exciting novel. To prove this, scholars numbered all the words, for instance, used by a particular author, all of the normal grammatical forms, how many times they appear, and then they would use that number to see if this document or that document matched up, to determine who the disputed authors of an ancient manuscript might be. Uh, who is dis disputing the authorship? Nobody. Uh, well, they were, because the whole goal of this was to show that the Bible was not historical, and if not historical, then God must not have much to do with history. God doesn't have much to do with history. Surely he doesn't have much to do with the known universe. Now, we, they didn't want to take away his transcendence out there somewhere, just in the same way they didn't want to take away your spiritual imagination in there somewhere, you know, in your soul. But they didn't, they wanted to be sure that it had nothing to do with the real world. Now, 25 years into this, they decided that this method, that is, of the biblical interpretation in the 19th century, they decided that this method didn't tell them anything, except long after the method was proven false, the conclusions they came to continued on. You would think if people said there was no such thing as the Hittites, and then they discovered the whole Hittite civilization, there was no such thing as the Babylonians, then they discover Babylon is there, lists of kings, and all that sort of thing. You would think that that would credit the Bible and discredit these idiot scholars. No, it was the exact opposite. <clears throat> what they did is they held to the conclusions came up with another way to say the Bible wasn't historical, and about every 15, 25 years they would have to change because their attempt to find objective truth, objective meaning, never worked. Something more insidious was waiting down the road, but, but that's, that, that, that gets us successfully through about 1950. Their conclusion, the Bible was not written by who we think it was, but by anonymous authors years later, often in committee. So with each 
attempt to objectively prove that the Bible was historically inaccurate, within 25 years it would be utterly discredited and a new method proposed. By the end of the 20th century, all methods were discredited, but their conclusion firmly established that the Bible is not historical. In other words, by a hundred scientifically disproven methods, it was scientifically proven that no book in the Bible was written by one person, and no book was written in the period of time it claims to have been written, only hundreds and thousands of years later. To this day, in almost any university, intro to ancient Semitic literature classes, you might think of them as the Old Testament, you will find this 1860s method of interpretation faithfully taught. Faithfully discredited as the professor moves through the history of interpretation, but the conclusions, for some reason, faithfully clung to, all the way up to his lectures on deconstruction. And that was the insidious thing waiting. You see, what happened in all this time was a very interesting story of revenge. The, the how do you say it, the non-scientific studies, history, uh, literature, and so forth, because they couldn't be reduced to scientific formulae, by the time you get into the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century is when it began, and there are very few people who saw this. Van Til was one, Rush Dooney was another, C.S. Lewis was another. Um, brilliant, brilliant people saw what was happening. That the despised uh, uh, arts, the history, the, the written studies, suddenly became the thing that was defining what ultimate reality was because the scientific method was becoming bankrupt as an ultimate explanation. And that's where we come to deconstruction. Suddenly, everything becomes rules of interpretation and nothing becomes true, not even the sciences. What they discovered without even knowing the land on which they stood was that when you abandon the Bible, God's word, as a legitimate starting point, you abandon the possibility of even having your science make sense. It's not that your science doesn't work, it does, but as an ultimate explanation of reality, it fails. It's like the person who wants to preserve his marriage saying, if I could only shine my car brighter. Well, that was science. In the beginning, his brightly shined car is what attracted the girl to him. Uh, after being married to him for about 10 years, that car was not nearly uh, attractive enough to overcome his defects as a human being. But man, he's out there shining his car. And that's, that's the way science is like. <clears throat> Getting back to the question, though, uh, why is this crucially important to the secular world that they debunk the Bible? What, what, so who cares about the Bible? Why is it that important? Do you realize that there are about f 10 to 1 Secular Bible scholars, unbelieving Bible scholars to every one believing Bible scholar. I mean, the, what is so important about, about disproving the Bible? Because the religion of the Bible is thoroughly historical, that's why. It makes truth claims as to what really did happen in history. And one of the truth claims is that God really did say and do things about everything that's here, including creating them, including creating the structures of them including creating the possibility of them. Radio waves are right there to be harnessed. If you went back into the Garden of Eden, your walkie-talkies would work. Your batteries would work. Even though there was no, nothing in the Garden of Eden to support the manufacture of them, 
the Garden Eden was filled with all the necessary elements to make radio waves work. So if the historicity of the Bible is allowed to stand, it calls into question the entire lie of modernity. There's two lies of modernity. One lie is that science is the only avenue to truth, and the other lie is there is no avenue of truth other than rules and ethics which you make, and that is your world, and it's just as good as any other world. Those are two completely different and opposite and opposing lies, but they feed off of each other because anything makes more sense to the rebel against God than humble reliance and acceptance of what God has said, even if it turns his whole world around. To turn the Christian West into malleable slaves to be controlled by government, they had to do something about this transcendent source of meaning in life, or else all attempts to rule man would keep running into this wall of God hath said. And these people who actually believe God said it, and a textual record that bears witness to what God has said and done. This religion that claimed to be historically real, the word of God, of history, is what they were up against. And that's why they spare no expense and why they outnumber our scholars 10 to 1. It is incredibly important to them to disprove it, even as it is important to us to simply accept it and sustain it. Now, remember the purpose of mathematical thinking about literature is to provide a set of rules of interpretations that will objectively give you, and give everyone else, the same interpretation of a text. Traveling down this road, what they found at the end of it is there is no such thing, by they I mean the humanists, there is no such thing as a set of rules, mathematical or otherwise, that can give two people the same understanding of almost anything. But even though their philosophical conclusion was that science gives you nothing that we can believe is sure and true, their conclusion is science doesn't give you anything that is sure and true, a foundation, yet they still believe that we can know conclusively and scientifically for sure that God and all creation, as the Bible sets them forth, cannot be true. The road from absolute sure knowledge to absolute unsure conjecture is an amazing road to follow. And that's one of the reasons why uh, modern studies from about 1500 to today in philosophy and so forth in the sciences is fascinating. It's worth your time to see how they could start out like tiny wooden soldiers and yet over time to bend so thoroughly that they end up with their heads where they now find them and it's dark in there. But they like it that way and that's, that's the bizarre thing. Meaning, you see, is more elusive than, than they at all imagined. It is something everyone has, but no one can really explain. And believe me, they, they gave a good shot at explaining it over the last 500 years. It is even, you might say, a given. Math and the scientific method are extremely helpful to understand many things and to process what we do not know about, did not know about before. But to attempt to communicate those things or anything else is to assume that meaning, like the meaning of math, or the meaning of I love you, is possible, whether you can describe it or not. To attempt to explain or to prove how we can understand anything always ends in acts of faith. And faith, of course, is what science came along to utterly discredit. You see, some things are just given. Given by whom? Now, the odd thing about human thought is that we can all think without having to trace every thought back to its origin. 
Yet to have a thought, there must be an origin, whether we can discover it or not. I don't mean by, by origin, the first person who thought it. I mean the thought exists because it makes sense. It makes sense because its meaning is found in a series of meanings, a context of things you believe. A context of meaning, a veritable nexus of meanings. And when you start tracing them back, this, this is true because I believe this, this, and this, and those things are true because I believe that, that, and that. You come to the transcendent reality that for something to be true or meaningful, it must be based on true reason and true facts, sort of. But ultimately, we have ultimate beliefs and ultimate ways of putting them together, logic, that functions like a fact. In other words, how you think the world ought to go together, once you followed all this careful reasoning, uh, acts just like a fact. Like, there's a rock over there. How do you know it's a rock? Because of this whole complex of stuff I believe about the world. So a rock is a rock. If I didn't believe all that stuff about the world, how would I know what the word rock even meant? Or why would I attach the word rock to that thing over there that I can pick up and throw? We're in the weeds here. But, I'll get us out of the weeds with this one. They are unprovable. You can't go, like I can pick up the rock, say, you don't believe about this rock? Watch me hit you on the head with it. You say, okay, that's a rock. I believe you. I believe you. You can't do that with logic. You know, ultimate beliefs like the world is rational, that's an ultimate belief, and that the world is knowable, it's so fundamental, we all act as if it's true. I mean, you can know things and live a meaningful existence. The real world is rational and knowable, like I can know true things. I can live a meaningful existence, so can you. I can recognize your meaningful existence is different from mine. I love that. I hate that. I don't understand. Oh, I get it. These all mean that all understanding is possible, even like I exist. Duh. Who do you think is thinking they exist? Oddly enough, not even I exist can be proven. What is really odd, though, is when you get right down to it, any argument that conclusively disproves God disproves you, too. It disproves knowledge. It disproves existence. When you start by trying to prove these things, that is existence and knowledge and so forth, you find that you must assume God, you must assume your existence, you must assume that things make sense, and you must assume that it makes sense to hear what someone else says, and it makes sense to try and tell somebody something. So when you start trying to prove anything, you find that you must assume them or presuppose them. If you want to be a real philosopher at this point, you could call them transcendental a prioris. But I won't, since the philosopher who called them that went off the deep end, and I can't ever understand what he was trying to say. But he did grasp the fact that you have to start somewhere. Actually, all philosophers grasp that in the end, even if you can't explain it. Now these starting points, these acts of faith, are called presuppositions. They are the things you must believe in order to believe anything at all. They are things you must believe in common with the person you're talking to in order to talk about anything at all. They're things that because you believe in them, because you believe in them, 
even if you can't describe them or talk directly about them, they alter and shape the things you can describe and talk about, and they are a sacred canopy that covers all you do and say. Presuppositions are the framework that contextualize our words and life. They're the scaffolding that upholds our meaning and makes our meanings meaningful. <laughs> Those have got to be two of the coolest sentences I've ever written or spoken. They are so pregnant, but they don't give birth. Philosophy is like that. You can say all kinds of cool things, but about the time you get it all figured out, no one has a clue what you're saying. So you go back to make it simpler, and you realize that you don't simplify it. What you do is you draw a picture, a sacred canopy. By the way, what is a sacred canopy? I don't know. But it, it really sounds cool, doesn't it? A scaffolding. We do know what that is. It's what you stand on and what you support a, the main th thing which you're trying to put together. Now, now, really, those pictures explain anything? But the words sound so cool. Mufasa. Mufasa. Now there's power. Remember the jackals in The Lion King? Transcendental a priori is the origin of all things that are true. <laughs> but what have you got? All I said was, our experience of life is normal, and we communicate all the time, even about ultimate things. But when we try to trace them back to be a sure proof, we find that their foundation, their proof, is not like there's a rock over there on the ground, or a tree, or ground at all. The things we, we rely on to prove the possibility of proof itself are given to us. But by whom? By what? The world's answer is nothing. They're just there. That's an answer. And they say we don't have answers? What kind of an answer is that? It's like saying, why? Because. You know, things are meaningful. So do all your neighbors. So does everyone other than the insane or the deeply grieved. They're the only ones who don't think things are meaningful. But you can't say why they're meaningful. This is one of the ways that every fact points to the triune God who is three and he is one at the same time. To be a fact, it must be understood in a context. To have a context, it must be rooted in basic beliefs that cannot themselves be proven. To even function in a world of meaning, you must believe that there is one who grants meaning as a possibility of his world because he is meaningful. <clears throat> now, I said you must believe. No, you don't have to believe in that, but you will act as if you do. Every unbeliever acts as if everything in Scripture is true. He can't help it. He just wants to deny it and then say, oh, I, I just did it this way because I'm so smart or whatever he thinks he is. When you study meaning, you discover that when something means something, it is a unified whole, and yet it can be broken into particulars, which in turn can be broken into particulars, which in turn and on and on. And yet there is this unified whole, a oneness, and your unified whole can be fit into a greater whole. This is the nature of our understanding and knowledge. God imparts his very unduplicatable nature to his creation in a way analogous to who and what he is. It's not a piece of who and what he is. A unified being who is in himself the foundation of communication, of right and wrong, of knowledge, of truth, of things that are many and yet one, because he communicates those within himself, and yet also, in spite of those differences, he is also one. It is his world, and he has spoken into it. We are his creatures. We can understand him when he speaks. 
and therefore we can understand each other. Yet it is a world that does not require anything to be known exhaustively in order to be known truly. It is a world where we can misunderstand God and his creation. And here's the thing that kills me. Not only can we misunderstand God and his creation, we can sufficiently, in our misunderstanding, understand it well enough to get along. And that's that's one of the greatest mysteries. I, I can get, hey, you got it wrong. You're just wrong. It's like you've drunk poison. You're not going to die. But what's hard to get is that you can get it wrong, but still have it right enough so that God in his mercy delays the effect of the poison that you're sipping on. But that's a great leap of faith, you tell me? Of course. So is the foundation of the modern alternative, that the world is not a creation, but rather some sort of continuum governed by physical, psychical, and social organizing principles. But beyond that, how things are organized is by chance, they want to tell us. They must assume that because there are rational minds, they must have arisen from unknown set of physical events, that reason and understanding arise spontaneously through a process, which they have no idea what it is, not as a result of a being who is personal and creates all things to be like him, though separate from him. You can argue which is true, but you can't argue that denying a person who made us personally Denying a thinking and purposive being who made us thinking purposive beings in his image. You, you can't say that that's any less of a faith commitment than believing that it all just kind of like arose from the primordial ooze. And you're serious? That's, that's not faith? Of course it's faith. The question is, what is the fruit of your faith? What is impossible for those who deny that this personal God, creator did it all is for them to get to day-to-day -day events without secretly borrowing ideas from the personal creator to make their alternative universe work inside his universe. Their first difficulty is mind and logic and meaning itself. They need to use God's gifts that are just given in order to be able to say there's nobody who gave these given things to me. Their first difficulty is their existence and knowledge and sense of well-being itself. Their first difficulty is there is no basis of moral law that makes society possible. Their first problem is that they have no way to understand pleasure. They must heavily borrow from this personal God and his personal creation to make their alternative psychological, social, and scientific alternative universes work. Literally everything around them is breaking into their world, even their own personhood is laughing at them and mocking at them. No wonder they're such miserable people. See, hermeneutics is a tool they develop to help them understand and get a grip on objectively understanding and judging the things they see. They may not be able to explain every proposition, presupposition, but they do know that they are in a world that sure seems to make sense, and they know they have meaning. God has made them like him. They, don't, they reject that, and that's why they need to know the rules. God did it because he wanted to become a creature in his creation. So he designed his creation to fit a creature that he could become, and he designed his creature so that he could become one. That's what the incarnation is. So yes, there are rules. We can use them to help us organize our understanding and thinking, just like math helps us organize our understanding and thinking about the world. And there are laws which make psychological, social worlds, even as denying them causes every evil thing. 
Morality is not a set of parochial rules. It is the warp and woof of your mind and your social integration. There is no other moral order that can lead to sustainable minds and societies. But we try. Oh, do we try to come up with them? And we can understand others because God has made them like us like them and them like us. Don't hate the guy in the alternative universe or the troll on your Facebook account. His life is rough bucking reality. And then he's and when he's done, I'm not sure if God sends him off to a place that burns forever, or does God simply let the man in the alternative universe bend into a fetal position in his presence, forever denying the reality of it blazing around him, shut out by his dogmatic commitment to whatever psychosocial spiritual universe or world and life view he has reinterpreted God's world and presence to be. The result would be combustion, I am sure, or something very like it. All his humanity, all his borrowed explanations, all of God's gracious gifts and goodness meant to draw him to, to God are removed at death's final judgment and his ushering into God's presence. And all that is left is the dogmatic fixed determination to block reality out itself as it burns even in his dogmatic determination itself to reject God. And he stands in God's presence or is curled in God's presence for eternity. Okay. I'm getting to the epistemological weeds here. The word epistemology is itself, like its twin ontology, a noble and useful weed, but a weed nonetheless. In fact, it is said that if you dry and smoke it, you can get high. I know, I've done just that. They are addictive. So let's step outside with me to clear the air. All I have said is that the God in his triunity gives us meaning and understanding, and he made us that way to be meaningful and to understand and to be understood. The unbeliever is irrational at this point, claiming that meaning, ordered understanding, is the fruit of disorder and meaninglessness. His rules create order. Meaning just appears. Once he says this or writes a mighty book proving it, he will go right back to acting as if the, you, the Christian, are correct and try to come up with rules of hermeneutics, just like we do, as if things are, in, are understandable. We do it because they are. Indeed, he cannot disprove God without disproving himself. What better definition of hell could you wish for? So hermeneutics, then, are two things. It is the description of the reasonable rules we follow to understand what is communicated to us. Rules like grammar and word meaning. Rules like logic, fallacies, and whatever the opposite of a fallacy is. Is it logic? Whatever, you get my meaning. And oddly enough, you do, even though I can't think of how to put it. Your mind fills in for me what I am getting at without having to know the opposite of a fallacy or even repeat one law of logic like the law of the excluded middle or post hoc prompter hoc. But you understand that there are other rules of interpretation too and that I would put in this category of methods we follow. For instance, that the literary structure of a text or the way the story is told may hold clues to its meaning, the expression on the teller's face. Of course, when you're writing, you don't can't convey that expression. <clears throat> Such as a chiastic structure would be a clue as to which verses in a chiasm are parallel to which, and therefore reveal meaning, because it might not be the verses right next to it. And of course, the idea that the context of a verse itself influences our interpretation of their meaning is another hermeneutical rule, which is why literary structure is very important. A verse's context may lie lines away from it as a chiastic structure. 
What you consider the body of literature that is related to itself is, is also going to affect meaning. That's one of the important reasons why a presupposition of biblical scholarship is, of sound biblical scholarship, is the canon is closed. That is the measuring stick which God gave us to measure the world, to measure all things, is closed. It's, he's not going to be adding to it this or that. It is what it is. The, the kind of utterance it is is important. You would not interpret humor the way you would interpret a law, the way you would interpret an interpretation of a law. Hey, with humor, we often take the exact opposite of the stated meaning to be the true meaning being gotten across by the joke. Seeing what something isn't in a funny way can help us see what something is in dead seriousness. Okay, the second way of defining hermeneutics is hermeneutics is also a dis de description of the presuppositions we have to hold to to come to the conclusions we come to. Some of those presuppositions are transcendental and philosophical, like, like, like I'm running out of time and I don't want to restate what I just spent the last 15 minutes talking about. Those are some philosophical presuppositions, you know, about how we must assume a particular transcendent personal God and reason and his creative works, etc., in order to make sense out of anything, including our own persons. But also, there are basic ideas about the world being orderly and God being able to speak and understandably to us and us to speak meaningfully to him. Assumptions about how God reveals himself and so forth. It could also include things like predestination, free will, creation, evolution, one's philosophy of, the, of history. Is Jesus about to come or is he going to transform history and come in the triumph of the work of his Holy Spirit and so forth. And the list goes on. These are different assumptions we make about the world, about the nature of the world and our place in it. The assumptions we make deeply affect how we see the world and how we read the text of Scripture, indeed, the text of anything, and what we do with it. The third hermeneutical area of assumptions are not just concrete. Uh, they are very concrete, so concrete they deserve their own category. But it's sort of an extension of what I was just talking about in number two. Yea, even a third category. And now you know how Proverbs got that funny little codicil. There be three things which are too wonderful me, yea, four, which I know not. It's because Solomon had three things in mind, and as he wrote them down, God brought a fourth thing to mind, but erasers hadn't been invented, or uh, the undo button keys, and so he just added on the yay even four up at the top where he had some room, and then wrote the four at the bottom of the list where he was at the moment in his writing of, of, the, um, of, of Proverbs. Now, by the way, what I just did is humor. I don't think Solomon did that way in the slightest, but it's a funny way of looking at it. And those of you who are very serious about things like this will be going, oh, what is his problem? Why, why can't he just stay with the text? It's because things like this are humorous. If God wasn't the Lord of the pun, which is on about every other page of scripture, um, I wouldn't think God had a sense of humor. And the humorless people don't think God has a sense of humor because they think puns are evil. <sighs> anyway, <clears throat> Bringing all this to a conclusion, in this category are specific conclusions that a person comes to on topics that are themselves much more this-worldly than transcendent, such as one's philosophy of history, of evolution, creation, free will, and predestination. Uh, 
Well, but seriously, this is waxing long, and I think I just said the same thing twice, which is not at all unusual, and it's something that a good editor would keep me from doing. But sometimes it's in the second time around that you get it. Well, that about wraps it up for the introduction. This has been a Reconstructionist radio production of Setting the Record Straight. I'm Joseph Foreman. As you can tell, if you've listened to these before, I have no idea how to close it, but I'm supposed to put something in properly that you can go to uh, Reconstructionist Radio and get this and other much better podcasts. <clears throat> now, as for my next podcast, I'm not going to say much more in, in the rest of these talks about the ultimate assumptions we must make every time we open our mouths, you know, like there is a God. I'm going to simply presuppose those. From time to time, that'll be an important point to make. <clears throat> that is, more properly, an apologetics course that I've just been doing. And I've said enough for that aspect of hermeneutics. I'm going to focus more on number three. What are the different assumptions people make that shape their thinking when they come to a verse that on the surface might seemingly have nothing to do with the interpretation they give it? Is there a deeper meaning? Are there rules to follow? Are grammar and historical setting ultimate? What is its context? And so forth. What do you have to believe about the world and life to be premillennial, postmillennial, believe in patriarchy? <clears throat> what do you believe about authority, and how does it shape your understanding of family, church, and state leadership? Those are the sorts of hermeneutical issues I'm going to be getting into. They'll be very concrete. Now, how do you get a hold of me? Uh, come by my coffee bar and we can do whatever it is they do in coffee bars, and thus you will have gotten a hold. And you might even get a chance to talk to some of my um, more interesting friends. You have a great day, and I will go from here to assist my wife in feeding the 5,000. <laughs>